Focus on Headline. Now let's take a look at what, my, what major issues are making the headlines here on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters, Kwon Soa and Che Jihee. Guys, welcome back to the studio. Good evening. Hi, guys. We're going to start things off with some uh, North Korea-related news here. Kim Yo-jung, who of course is the sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, making remarks regarding South Korea, according to the state media, her words uh, directed at the issue of South Korea's defense chief's talk in public last week of his troops' preemptive strike capabilities. We knew that we were going to get some strong remarks from Pyongyang in regards to Seok's comments here. But nevertheless, Chihi, start us off and fill us in on this. Sure. So Kim Yo-jong, who is the vice department director of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, described South Korean Defense Minister Seok's remarks regarding uh, quote-unquote preemptive strike capabilities as a very big irretrievable mistake. Uh, she said South Korea is no match for North Korea, a nuclear-armed country, and reiterated that Seoul is not a principal enemy of Pyongyang. Now, she said North Korea will not strike a single bullet against South Korea, and she explained that the reason behind this is not simply because of the differences in defense capabilities between the two states, but because the South and the North are actually part of a single nation and that uh, there should be no war between the two. Now, Kim Yo-jong had strongly criticized Minister Seok for his remarks regarding the preemptive precision strike two days ago. Uh, while she continued to criticize his remarks, this time her words were toned down and she emphasized that South Korea will not be regarded as a target of attack unless the South Korean army takes any military action against North Korea first. Now, she also warned that while the North opposes a war that may put the peninsula into a disaster situation like that of 70 years ago, uh, things could change depending on the South's move. Now, she said North Korea's nuclear combat force will have to inevitably carry out its duty in case South Korea chooses military confrontation with the North. So basically, unless South Korea uh, doesn't attack the North first, uh, there will be no strike by the North on South Korea. And regarding Kim Yo-jong's recent comments, some experts uh, said that Kim Yo-jong's, what Kim Yo-jong had recently said uh, implies that the regime of Kim Jong-un clearly understands that a possible war may threaten the existence of the regime itself. So Kim Yo-jong's remarks, we could understand it as uh, uh, that the regime is actually fearing a possible preemptive strike by yeah. South Korea. And also another expert uh, specializing also in North Korean issues said the North is justifying its nuclear development. And uh, the remarks by Kim Yo-jong are indirectly criticizing President-elect Yoon Seok-er's remark on his preemptive strike as well. And also uh, the expert said Kim Yo-jong's remarks are ultimately reflecting Kim Jong-un's thoughts. And so it also holds an indirect message that there are possibilities that uh, North Korea may uh, be willing to talk with the new administration in the future. I mean, this is uh, quite interesting, especially because Kim Yo-jong, as we've known in the past few years, uh, she's kind of been, uh, you know, infamous in some ways uh, mm -hmm. for her harsh rhetorics. Uh, you know, she's, you know, we talked about how Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong, they play that kind of that the good cop, bad cop thing. And she's been known to uh, really come out with some 
some harsh remarks, but this is, I, I don't know, in, in, in some ways a, a pleasant surprise. Uh, are they finally realizing that South Korea is not going to sit around and do nothing about it is the other question. And we talked about uh, the whole idea, the statement of uh, preemptive strike, how dangerous it's going to be. Is that a wake-up call for Pyongyang that, once again, South Korea isn't going to sit idly when there's threats, especially because of the, the ICBM test that we've seen uh, not too long ago. Uh, but also the top nuclear chiefs from South Korea and the U.S. got together in Washington on Monday and called a, on a stern response against Pyongyang's provocation. So you have the details on this. Yes. So Dogyu Duck Seoul's top nuclear envoy and his U.S. counterpart Sung Kim called on a new U.N. Security Council resolution against Pyongyang to punish North Korea for its ICBM launch and other earlier provocations. That meaning it's a call for new sanctions. No and Kim met at the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C. on Monday local time to share their views on regional diplomacy and security issues. And uh, Kim said after meeting with um, reporters after the meeting said that the two sides reaffirmed the denouncement against North Korea's recent ballistic missile launches, including the latest ICBM. And uh, so I do eye on that uh, these um, launches violate multiple UNSC resolutions, and uh, they looked forward to cooperate with allies as well as the UN members on new measures. And uh, No also um, echoed those words, and uh, he also said that engaging North Korea for uh, any possible talks also remains important and said that the U.S. has reaffirmed it is open for a dialogue. All right. So, you know, there's talks about still, nevertheless, uh, because of their ICBM launch uh, sanctions once again. So what could new sanctions look like, though? Well, uh, discussions uh, could include uh, more restrictions to crude and refined oil supplies. Currently, international sanctions limit crude oil supply to the north by up to 4 million barrels a year and refined oil supply to 500,000 barrels. Uh, Sung Kim also um, is expected to make a visit to South Korea soon as he was invited by his South Korean counterpart. So I believe discussions on the North Korea issues will continue also uh, with the incoming uh, Yoon Seok administration and uh, the transition team as well. Now, meanwhile, I also want to uh, add that uh, these, uh, if there are going to be new sanctions, uh, we of course need the support from China and Russia as yeah. well. That's not going to be an no. easy task. But Song Kim is also uh, scheduled to meet with his uh, Chinese Chinese counterpart Du Xiaoming pretty soon because Du is visiting the U.S. to discuss North Korea issues. And the U.S. State Department uh, did say that uh, earlier the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. had uh, met with Du Xiaoming and uh, had urged him to persuade North Korea to return to the negotiating table. Uh, and uh, also uh, earlier when I also mentioned that um, the U.S. remains open towards dialogue. Actually, Do Kyodok, South Korea's uh, nuclear envoy, did mention also that he uses this opportunity to call on North Korea to refrain from uh, worsening the situation, the tensions on the Korean peninsula, and return to diplomatic talks. Again, I know, uh, once again, we mentioned this before, but what North Korea wants is uh, sanctions relief. But, uh, you know, for them to continue firing away with these ICBM tests, uh, it's not going to 
uh, convince Washington to remove those sanctions. If anything, what we're seeing is more sanctions put in place. But again, with all the waves and the different uh, you know sanctions being piled on on North Korea, how much longer can they take this uh, is the other question. Uh, but also, President-elect Yoon Sagir's U.S. ROK uh, policy consultation delegation uh, delivering Monday that the uh, U.S. and South Korea agreed on the need to upgrade their bilateral alliance and uh, reactivate the extended deterrence strategy and consultation group as well. Chihi, tell us more about this. Sure. So as part of President-elect Yoon's campaign pledge to activate the extended deterrence strategy and consultation group, or EDSCG, uh, Yoon had sent the head of his policy consultation delegation, Park Jin, to the U.S. for a meeting with U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman. Now, Park explained after having a one-hour, 50-minute-long meeting with Sherman that they uh, relayed the president-elect's wish for South Korea and the U.S. to upgrade the bilateral alliance between the U.S. and South Korea into a comprehensive and strategic alliance and formed a consensus regarding the matter. Now, as the main objective of Park's delegation is to strengthen the South Korea-U.S. alliance, the two will hold further discussions with people with the U.S. administration, Congress, and think tanks to lay the groundwork for the normalization of the South Korea-U.S. alliance and also to create a strong foundation of their bilateral relationship. Now, Park said the U.S. agreed on the need for the complete, verifiable, and irreversible uh, denuclearization of North Korea, and that the U.S. and South Korea must agreed, also agreed uh, for the need to reactivate the EDSCG to that end. Uh, Park also said the two sides agreed that maintaining deterrence to counter any of the North's provocation is most important. Uh, and this is why the strengthening and extending of deterrence and the reactivating of the EDSCG, which has failed to carry out its role over the past few years, are important and have been agreed upon during the recent meeting with the U.S. Now, the South Korean delegation also met with Kurt Campbell, a White House policy coordinator for Asia. Uh, regarding their uh, meeting with Campbell, Park explained that the delegates said they had agreed on the importance of developing the South Korea-U.S. alliance to also promote economic security and technology cooperation. Now, they also quoted Campbell as saying that the U.S. is looking forward to working closely with the incoming administration of South Korea, which will uh, take office in May, uh, and also emphasize the importance of the trilateral cooperation among Seoul, Washington, and Tokyo. Yeah, and this is exactly what, uh, you know, President like Yoon Sagir had said during his campaign, that uh, he's going to be improving uh, ties with uh, not just the United States, but also Japan. And this is going to be all the more important, especially when and there's uh, quite a bit of instability on the Korean Peninsula. And so we're seeing more and more comments on that front. Uh, we're going to move on talk about South Korea's space rocket technology development updates here. The country aims to master a solid fuel space rocket launch in 2025. So just about three years from now. Uh, so tell us about this particular plan. Sure. A government researcher was quoted by local media as unveiling a plan to launch a full-fledged solid fuel space rocket from the Naro Space Center in Kohung in 2025. Kohung is around 470 kilometers south of Seoul. The official, who wished not to be named though, told reporters on Monday that it'll be a 500 kilogram experimental 
experimental satellite that will be launched into a low Earth orbit at an altitude of 500 kilometers. Now, last week, uh, the government-run Agency for Defense Development said it successfully conducted a test launch of a solid-fuel space rocket for the first time that was from Taeyeon, which is uh, 150 kilometers southwest of the capital's Seoul. Now, operation capabilities like fairing separation, upper stage altitude control were confirmed in Wednesday's test. And uh, this was part of Seoul's efforts to independently launch and run military satellites, ultimately to boost the nation's surveillance in space and reconnaissance exercises. Now, before the ambitious launch in 2025, one or two more capability tests may be needed, according to the official uh, I mentioned before. And the main objective of the 2025 test will be the observation of Earth for both military and civilian purposes. The official, meanwhile, dismissed speculation that South Korea's uh, actions may be linked to North Korea's recent missile launches. Uh, The timing just seems to be a coincidence. And also the main goal is actually to transfer these technologies to the civilian sector, brushing off that the plans are triggered uh, by the military to counter Pyongyang with Seoul's own rocket capabilities. Yeah, it's going to be quite interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe some might ponder uh, how North Korea is going to respond to this because uh, what they did was they kind of, uh, you know, veiled their uh, ICBM test and said that it was for a reconnaissance satellite launches and so mm. forth. And although it does seem like on Seoul's part, it is for satellite purposes, they might be saying, whoa, 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 uh, what are you planning here? But uh, nevertheless, uh, we'll see. I mean, it's 2025, certainly ever since uh, some of the restrictions have been lifted on those missile launches uh, by uh, the U.S. So we are seeing more developments on this front. In the meantime, South Korea's Foreign Minister Chung Yong will be participating in a meeting of the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO foreign ministers to be held over in Belgium. Jihi, you have the details of this? Right. So it's the first time foreign ministers of non-NATO partner countries in the Indo-Pacific region are invited to the NATO meeting for foreign ministers. Uh, South Korea was invited along with Japan, Australia and New Zealand and some other non-NATO partner countries such as Sweden, Finland, Georgia and the European Union were also invited to this meeting. Now, South Korean Foreign Minister Chung Yong headed to Brussels today to attend the NATO session, which is slated for Thursday and Friday. Uh, the meeting will be presided by NATO Secretary General Jens uh, Stoltenberg, and 30 nations will be attending the meeting. Uh, the participating foreign ministers will discuss various international matters including the Ukraine crisis and ways to strengthen the international order amid multiple global security challenges. Uh, Foreign Minister Chung is expected to seek ways to respond to North Korea's ICBM testing and remarks made by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong, as we talked about earlier, uh, with the international community. The foreign ministry announced that Minister Chung will make a speech on the Ukraine crisis, South Korea-NATO partnership, and the issue on the Korean peninsula. Uh, So Chung will be the first South Korean foreign minister to be attending this NATO foreign minister's meeting this time. Uh, Of course, a lot of these uh, European names, very hard to pronounce, (laughs) of course. uh, Soa itching to get the proper name here. I believe uh, the the German pronunciation is uh, for NATO Secretary General Jans. Oh, you're talking about Jens Stoltenberg? (laughs) (laughs) Even I got it wrong. Even I got it wrong. So (laughs) there you have it. 
All right, uh, moving on to some economic headlines this time. So South Korea's consumer price is growing more than 4% last month. I'm sure you guys all felt this as well. Uh, this is the highest in more than 10 years. So you have the details on this, Hoa. Right. Uh, inflation pressure keeps on growing amid a global rise in energy prices triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although, uh, SJ, if you remember, we did talk last week about a slight drop in those prices, but yeah. these figures did not reflect in inflation growth as of yet. So uh, Statistics Korea data showed this Tuesday that South Korea's consumer price index rose 4.1% in March from the same month a year earlier. And uh, that is an increase from a 3.7% year-on-year growth in February. And it's also for the first time since December 2011 that inflation grew more than 4%. Uh, The 3% growth trend had been continuing for the fifth straight month until February. So surging energy prices and commodity costs due to the Ukraine crisis, as well as a prolonged economic recovery momentum, are cited as factors that may lead to a further upward trend in inflation. And in fact, an official at Statistics Korea did say we do not see the upward trend in inflation showing slowing significantly next month. Uh, Korea's central bank, uh, therefore, is uh, pressured to raise its benchmark interest rate higher this month or maybe in May. Uh, a rate-deciding meeting, in fact, comes up next week. Uh, the BOK had already raised its key interest rate three times since August last year, and the latest one happened in January by 025 percentage point. Now, meanwhile, the government is uh, planning to expand tax cuts on fuel consumption in a bit to help ease the inflation trend uh, and this over the next three months so from the current 20 to 30 percent starting in may to the end of july i don't know if you've uh, if you guys seen the news uh, earlier this morning but uh, speaking of key interest i mean th- these are the one ways to kind of tackle the uh, the rising inflation right uh, raise the key interest rate over in zimbabwe i don't know if you guys saw this their key interest rate at their central bank uh, lifted to 80 percent 80%. key interest rate over in Zimbabwe. Uh, I mean, they're, they're going through a lot. And, uh, you know, they're seeing quite a bit of inflation because of the Ukraine crisis. But also there's Zimbabwean dollar. I think that the value of that cut by more than two-thirds. So mm. they're in a completely different situation there. But, yeah, again, I mean, we are probably going to see the key interest rates uh, move up because of the inflation we're seeing. Uh, but also, Jihi, South Korea's national debt in 2021, uh, this not surprising. I think we all kind of expected this mm-hmm. to happen. Broke previous record, increasing by more than 10%. Let's get the details on this. Right. So the country's national debt increased by almost 11% on year in 2021, surpassing 1.8 trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, the debt to GDP ratio in the same period came to around 47%, which is up more than 3% on year. Uh, This is largely attributable to the additional supplementary budgets that we had uh, to support those who have been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The 2021 National Settlement was reviewed during a cabinet meeting held today, and the finance ministry said ahead of the meeting that although the debt did increase, the country managed to reduce its deficit to some extent. The ministry explained that despite financing the largest ever public spending last year, the deficit has been decreased thanks to the increase in the national tax income amid the faster-than-expected economic recovery. 
So with the government's expansionary fiscal policy, uh, which was maintained throughout the pandemic to boost spending, the figure stood at some 494 billion U.S. dollars, which is up 9% from the previous year. Uh, Meanwhile, the country's total earnings stood at around $469 billion, which is an approximately 19% increase from the previous year, uh, which is, again, a faster recovery than expected. Now, the difference between the two figures is referred to as the deficit. And this came to about $25 billion, uh, which is $33 billion less than the deficit in 2020. Some interesting comment coming out from our live YouTube streaming. JB says, all prices went up besides my salary. Um, I think that's something that everyone can kind (laughs) of agree with the uh, the inflations. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, how much longer can this go? I remember talking to one of the experts uh, last year. This was sometime around, I believe, May, so almost a year ago. At the time, a lot of experts are saying that the inflation, the rise in consumer prices, it was temporary, that it wasn't going to last that long. And then, of course, we had the Delta, and then we had the Omicron, and the Ukraine crisis. So, again, I mean, don't want to jinx it, but, uh, I mean, how much longer can we go with this, right? Uh, Speaking of something that has been going on for a really, really long time, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we have some updates here. So, uh, cases jumping from the day before, we did expect this, obviously. Uh, In fact, the numbers did remain within the expectations given the weekend factor. But nevertheless, let's get the figures that came in earlier this morning. Sure. So 266,135 cases were tallied as of 12 a.m. this Tuesday. It is quite a jump from the day before by almost 139,000. But if we compare the figure to exactly a week ago on Tuesday, that's a drop by more than 81,000 infections, which means that the um, on week downward trend is continuing and uh, around a little more than half of cases have occurred in the capital region Uh, and uh, there are some places that uh, yesterday when we just had uh, some 127,000 infections there were actually many places across the country that saw four digit figures in uh, daily infections but many of those have risen back to the five digit level Uh, meanwhile Korea's accumulated caseload now stands at above 14. 26 million and deaths stand at 17,662 in total with 209 additional deaths reported in the past day. Uh, There's been a slight rise in the number of patients in severe or critical conditions standing at 1,121 and uh, meanwhile we've got um, around 2,800 people who got their first COVID-19 vaccine dose the day before, some 2,600 who got their second dose and some 21,500 who got their additional or booster shot. We haven't been talking about the vaccine figures no, lately. No. That's why I'm just uh, giving out this uh, number uh, for a change. Uh, recently, we only have some 1,000 to 3,000 people who are getting their first or second shot. That's the young kids, right? Is, is, uh, is the vast majority of them like the, the, the adolescents maybe? Uh, that's a good question because actually since we just recently started our vaccine vaccination for those age 5 to 11, we might think that uh, the recent rise in vaccinations might be the youngest population. But actually, uh, since the vaccination program has kicked off, there was only, I think, 0.6% of that population that uh, has gotten their first shot. And that because many parents still seem to be reluctant. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, again, you you guys know that I've been a a big fan of getting vaccinated, right? And uh, I've always said, you know, you should get vaccinated unless 
you obviously have, you know, health concerns and so forth. In that case, uh, you have a very good excuse. But yeah, with kids, especially because what I'm seeing, I, you know, I got infected with COVID-19, my wife did, and then my kid as well. And although he's only, you know, four years old, Korean age, like he went through it very well. And mm-hmm. it seems like all the other younger kids are going through it well. So why risk maybe some of the negative side effects of the vaccines? If they're going to get it, they'll get over with it very quickly. And so it seems to be what the same thing that the, the parents are thinking right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And an- another thing, you want to go first? Oh, oh, just really briefly. Um, they also recommended only those with high risks, mm-hmm. the children yeah, yeah. with high risks, to get vaccinated. And for others who are uh, relatively healthy, it's really the choice of the parents to give them the vaccines or not. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to make that point. Right. Mm-hmm. And then another point is that actually there's been already, like SJ's son as well, many kids that have been already infected. And the government did mention that it's not recommended to uh, get vaccinated for children if they have been already infected. Yeah. Uh, Only in that case, again, if they are immunocompromised kids. So, for instance, if a healthy child got his or her first shot and then got COVID-19, they should not, uh, they are not recommended to get the second shot. Uh, So recently, actually, I believe almost half of uh, recent infections were among the young, younger population. I don't have the exact figure right now. But uh, yes, uh, especially those aged zero to nine years old in the past week, they made up the highest proportion of infections, according to officials uh, this Tuesday. Uh, So actually, uh, I also want to go through some of the uh, most weekly risk assessments uh, that the government has uh, given lately. Um, Still, there are some positive uh, signals. However, officials did mention that Korea's pandemic risk level remains unchanged at very high uh, nationwide. Uh, But the good news is that there's been a drop by 13% of cases Uh, in the last week of March compared to the week before. And here's the thing, the reproduction rate of the virus uh, fell to 0.91 from 1.01 on week. So this number has dropped to below one for the first time in 11 weeks. And we know a reproduction rate below one represents a slowdown. So uh, meanwhile, also uh, the number of patients uh, in their 60s and above, they have a lower infection rate than other groups right now, which is also a positive sign. But again, uh, going back to those aged zero to nine year year olds, per 100,000 children in that age group, 1,015 is the number infection. So that's how high the infection is currently among this uh, youngest population. Uh, Patrick Purser chiming on on live YouTube by uh, saying something interesting. Again, I'm not, I'm not a uh, COVID-19 expert. I'm not sure how, you know, how true this is. Omicron, uh, with Omicron variant, especially the, the stealth Omicron, he says, the human immune system cannot create permanent antibodies against Omicron. So the vaccination is the only solution. Um, you know, the thing with uh, the vaccination is, I've, you know, I've got the booster shot as well, uh, but, you know, still got infected. There's been a lot of people that had the booster shot and still got uh, infected. And so I think what they're probably going to be looking into, I, I think I saw some news uh, that, uh, you know, later in, in fall, I think it is, the government is saying that we might need to get more vaccines by then because there's going to be new variants. And hopefully by then we'll have a vaccine that is actually even more effective because I think... 
the way that the, the, the COVID-19 virus is mutating, it's mutating faster than we could produce new vaccines. Uh, but one thing is for sure, I think uh, for a lot of people, if, if they've been vaccinated, their, their symptoms are less severe than those who haven't been uh, vaccinated. So hopefully we'll see at that. But so, uh, you know, we keep mentioning uh, this particular article by the mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how South Korea, and I, I still agree, despite the fact that we're seeing hundreds of thousands of cases on a daily basis, um, still, you know, the 200 plus uh, deaths per day, I think it's very high. But it seems like the Wall Street Journal and everyone around the world, they're kind of comparing it to their countries where they see thousands and tens of thousands of people uh, die during their peak. And if you look at South Korea, it looks really, really good. So this whole idea of South Korea becoming sort of the, the, the front runner in handling COVID-19 like an endemic has been brought forth. This is a discussion that we've talked about uh, in the past. But should we treat it uh, like it's an endemic so far right now? Should we act like uh, we have kind of almost defeated uh, this pandemic and we could treat it like endemic, I think, is the big question moving forward here. Is it too early? Uh, let's turn that question to you first, uh, Chihi. Right. Well, I don't think uh, there's a need for us to rush it, although I do understand that uh, the journal experts who explained in the journal uh, that uh, looking at the situation in Korea, it's very possible for us to uh, state that the uh, pandemic has now become can announce it as an endemic now, although I understand the scientific grounds behind that. I don't think there's a need for us to uh, rush it. Uh, and also, I'm I'm going to be explaining briefly afterwards uh, about the new variant yeah. that's been identified in parts of the world uh, as well. We still have not identified the exact characteristics of this new strain, and we never know what this is going to cause. It may cause another uh, rise, a surge in the infection. So. There's really no need to rush it, although that's ultimately the way forward. Um, I don't think we should announce that it's an endemic within this month, at least, because we still have high numbers of infections and we have seen uh, more than 200,000 cases uh, again today. And so we should not be rushing it. That's my stance. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Chihi, in that, uh, you know, South Korea, for the longest time, we've been looking at uh, some of the other countries and how they've dealt with it. Now it seems like some of the other countries are looking at South Korea and how we're going to deal with it. But Mm -hmm. one thing's for sure, one of the things that we learned from, let's say, uh, UK is like the best example, I think. Mm -hmm. They kind of treat it uh, over time like COVID-19 is just a common flu. You know, there's cases where even if you've been infected with COVID-19, you don't have to be in, in quarantine. Uh, mass off and you can do they're they're living life like as if COVID-19 is not going around but you're seeing a surge in, mm-hmm. in, in infection cases right now and it's very concerning so that's something that we don't want to see any country that's rushed into something uh, the, the results hasn't been so good so what about yourself I mean should Korea become a front runner in handling COVID-19 like an endemic well, uh, first off, I think this article is being really praised here in Korea right now by many officials because it's been um, mentioned by Prime Minister Kim Bo-gyeom, I believe, uh, last week or so when we touched upon this issue. And now also President Moon Jae-in has actually mentioned the idea of South Korea uh, becoming a front runner in treating the uh, COVID-19 pandemic as an endemic. Now, uh, what he uh, actually uh, noted is that uh, Korea... Uh, has been able to, um, you know, 
to protect many lives during the two years of the pandemic, although we do have uh, more higher numbers of infections. Uh, and I think uh, the Wall Street Journal article did uh, make a good uh, note of the, that fact because uh, other countries who might be just looking at the daily figures in Korea m might be wondering why should Korea become uh, a front runner in all of this. I think um, we might be one of the best countries uh, in a situation that could move towards uh, an endemic uh, because we have higher vaccination rates in other places. But uh, what an endemic would uh, also encompass is uh, not having to quarantine patients uh, yeah. like uh, uh, what, what we're did. doing right now. And this was actually one uh, concern that I mentioned in the program before. And this is what the government is now discussing, whether we could sh first off shorten the quarantine period to five days from seven days, which the UK and the US, uh, for instance, have already done. Uh, because when we have a cold, we do not have a quarantine, a mandatory quarantine period, we can even right away go to work or to school. And then in many cases, we do infect our friends and families in our surroundings. So as T mentioned, I also think that we should not uh, rush towards that. Uh, but uh, maybe it has uh, economic benefits if we do um, if we do change the level of this uh, COVID-19 uh, threat level, I think uh, there's, there are these uh, specific um, levels of um, how we treat viruses. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cautious. <laughs> Be cautious. That wraps it up, yes. Yeah, I mean, long explanation, but simply put, I think uh, all of us, because, again, I mean, all three of us, we tend to be more on the cautious side, right? I mean, I, I think a lot of people, are, and myself included, we hope one day that we can kind of treat it like this. But Patrick says, uh, is the Omicron variant really an endemic? 40 to 50% of all infected people have long COVID, and one of five of these people, 8% of all infected, never get over it. Well, we never said it's going to be an endemic. Treat it like an endemic is mm -hmm. the thing. And this is the reason why it's kind of controversial in some ways, because you're right. It's very different from like a cold or, mm -hmm. or, or a flu in that we never talk about the, the long side effects of having a cold or, or having a flu, whereas COVID-19, you're definitely seeing this. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we, we can't really fully treat it like a cold or a flu. Uh, but again, it seems like, I mean, how else are we going to do it, right? I mean, we can't be living like this for the rest of our lives. Um, and unless, you know, there's treatments in place and there's more treatments in place and more vaccines in place where we could kind of, uh, you know, prevent this from happening uh, in the long run. I think that's the other solution. But of course, every time we talk about the things going the right way, we talk about another variant. And uh, yeah, the XE variant, I've been hearing about this uh, quite a lot uh, in the news these days. Let's talk a little bit about this, Chihi, because this has been identified in several parts mm -hmm. of the world. Sure. So really briefly, um, cases of a new mutant, like you said, called XE, and this is known to be a combination of the BA1 Omicron and the BA2 or stealth Omicron. They're being reported in various parts of the world. 
Uh, and the World Health Organization recently warned that it could be the most transmissible coronavirus strain so far. But then South Korean health authorities said on Sunday that thankfully the country has no confirmed cases of this new hybrid strain so far. Uh, however, senior health ministry official Son Young-le stated during a regular briefing yesterday that quarantine measures that have been lifted in the country may be implemented again, depending on the results of an evaluation of this new strain uh, regarding its transmissibility, fatality, and how resistant it is to the current vaccine. Uh, and the health ministry is currently examining the characteristics of the new variant, including the three factors that I've earlier explained. And however, although uh, it's quite concerning, any new variant always makes us feel scared, right? But there, are, the good news is that the official explained, it seems that the XC variant, although it may be more transmissible than the other two uh, strains of the Omicron, uh, it may not have severe effects. So that's good news. But he also explained that uh, we could see uh, the pandemic lasting for longer than we have expected. I just uh. want to make a slight uh, correction. Maybe yeah. uh, Son young uh, made this through um, an interview on mm -hmm. radio because uh, the, the government has actually changed its uh, regular briefing schedule. So it uh -huh. was maybe more of a personal comment that he made uh, regarding the XE variant. Oh, okay. Not yeah. a regular briefing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but nevertheless, I mean, that also seems to be kind of the consensus amongst the health experts as well. And so, I mean, I mean, they're not even giving me what, they're not even telling me what the next uh, Greek alphabet is right now. I don't know what XE <laughs> is all about, but... Uh, it is, again, uh, the big point that we want to make here is I think we can't be lax just yet. Mm -hmm. I, I know we want to be free from the mask and things like that. And I'm sure enough, uh, in a few weeks, there's going to be discussions about, you know, masks being off on the you know outdoor scenes and so forth. But again, uh, a lot of people are saying that maybe still it's a little bit too early for that. Well, we'll have to find out. Nevertheless, guys, as always, thank you very much for these reports and your insights on some of these issues. Please stay safe and we'll see you guys again. See you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.